now beginning in verse 22, Paul takes man's depravity, his unrighteousness and ungodliness to a deeper level. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Claiming, fosco in the Greek, means alleging or pretending. That's important to understand that. Pretending or claiming, professing to be wise, they became fools. Moreno. That sound familiar? It's the Greek word from which we get our English word what? Moron. Isn't that amazing? So pretending to be wise, sophos, possessing wisdom, they become morons. Fools. In other words, to pretend to be wise, they make themselves stupid. What a display of the pretentiousness of those whose hearts are alienated from God. To stand and profess to be wise when in reality they're not. Pretending to be something. And then in verse 23 we see what we could refer to as the first exchange. Look at what he says in verse 23. And exchange. Let's go back and read the whole thing. Claiming to be wise they became fools. Verse 22. And then verse 23. And, and note this word, exchanged. The glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The Greek word translated in the English Standard Version exchanges alasa. And this word means to cause. And listen to the definition. It means to cause one thing to cease and another to take its place. So Paul says the glory of God was exchanged, removed from its rightful place, and something else put in that place for images. In other words, these were what? Idols. They were idols. Here, man's idolatry is on full display. The glory of God is the sum of his perfections. In verse 20, it talks about his eternal power and divine attributes. But yet men willfully and intentionally forsake the worship of God and they dismiss the immortal, the incorruptible, and they place it with the mortal and the corruptible. And they begin to worship that. The Old Testament refers to this in regards to idolatry, and it gives us a tremendous illustration about the man who cuts down a tree and carves from it his idol to worship, and with the scraps, cast him into the fire to keep himself warm. Is that not the height of foolishness? From the same tree you've cut down, you hew an idol to worship as if somehow it can deliver you, and then with the scraps of your whittling, you throw it in the fire and keep yourself warm. And begin to worship this, even degenerating to the point of worshiping images. And I'm not even going to have to spend time here, but images of birds, animals, and creeping things. I I believe the Holy Spirit had Paul write mortal man first for reason. Because man has always aimed, listen, man has always aimed to make himself a God. To deify himself. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning, what was it that the serpent tempted Eve with? For God surely knows that the moment you eat this, you will what? Be like Him. In other words, you will be what? You'll be God. 
I had a friend years ago, a very close friend of mine that just out of nowhere converted to Mormonism. And I was, some, some of our friends were shocked and they said, did you realize what's happened to Mike? I said, no. And they shared it with me and I just looked at them and said, I'm not a bit surprised. Don't you know these, anytime anybody can be told they can be a God. It's an enticing thing. The French atheist Voltaire is reported to have said, we don't know for sure, but probably pretty much accurate that what he said to have made this statement. And he was being sarcastic, undoubtedly, but he said, God made man in his own image and man returned the favor. In fact, we often reward it by saying, well, in the beginning, God created man in his own image and man has been trying for ever since to return the favor. Indeed, true man's propensity since the fall has been to exalt himself which is a form of self-worship, which is nothing less than idolatry. Listen, church. But man's degeneracy does not stop at merely self-worship. His insatiable desire for something to worship other than the true God drives him to worship anything and everything. Paul says he don't even go beyond the fact that he'll worship himself and set himself up as a deity, but he'll even worship birds. He'll worship beasts. He'll worship creeping things, things that are unclean. He'll worship those things. Unless we think such practices are restricted to more primitive cultures, more ancient times, we need only consider what we are witnessing in this very day. In this day very day. All of these practices, all of these practices in 21st century existence, all of these practices are being practiced today here among us. There's humanism that places men at the pinnacle of all things. There's extreme environmentalism that places nature at the pinnacle of all things. Earth worship, nature worship, it goes on and on and on. All this is indeed indicative of the futile, as Paul says, the futile thinking, verse 21, and the foolish hearts that are in darkness, verse 21. Now look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Note that. If you don't mind writing or underlining in your Bible, if you're taking notes, write, underline that. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. Now, what I'm going to do just the next few minutes as I, as I wrap this up is I'm going to kind of set the stage, as it were, or as to kind of set the springboard up for where we're going to go next week. So I want you to listen very carefully. I'm going to move very succinctly and as clearly as I can to lay the foundation for us to come back to this next week. But here is, here is the second exchange. While the first exchange was the action of men, men exchanged something here, this exchange is an action, and it's important to notice, is an action taken by God. It is an action on God's part. First, man exchanged. Now, God acts by giving them or giving men up. It's very important to pay special attention to what is being said in this verse. I say this because this verse, as I said a moment ago, sets the backdrop. For what Paul writes in the final eight verses of chapter one. This is where we begin to see God's wrath. His divine retribution for man's rebellion and its consequences. I mean, the, the critic, the, the skeptic may say, well, I don't see fire coming out of heaven. I don't see 
floods destroying the earth. Maybe we can see isolated things like that, tsunamis. But I don't, I don't see this wrath, this action of God. I mean, I don't see that. I mean, what we're just seeing is natural stuff. Well, this is where we begin to see God's order, God's wrath, His divine retribution from man's rebellion and His consequences. Let's break this verse down very quickly. First it says, therefore God gave them up. It, that God gave them up or gave them up is actually one Greek word. It's paradidomai. And it means to give over into one's power or use. So God in effect, and here's, here's what it's saying. God in effect withdraws his hand. Think about this. Think about this. Listen. God withdraws his hand and gives them over to the very things they preferred other than him. Wow. Is that, is that not the most sobering thought? That, that, I mean, would you want to even imagine a moment in your existence where God withdraws himself from you? And God turns you over to the things that you want more than you want Him. How fearful a thing is that? But that is exactly what Paul is saying. God removes His hands. Not that He's out of control. God's not out of control of this situation. In fact, God is very much in control of this situation by literally giving them over to the very things they preferred other than Him. In doing so, as we'll see, the devastating consequences are inevitable. They are inevitable. As men persisted in their rebellion, as men persist in their rebellion, God gave them over to their depraved natures. And the second part, number two, therefore God gave them up to in the lust of their hearts. You see, this, you see, this implies that man's problem, that is his fallenness is not superficial, but is rooted deep in his very existence. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Our problem goes deep, deep to who we are, into the very core of our existence. Lust in the Greek word is the word epithumia. The, the, the use of the prefix epi in that word intensifies its meaning. So it is an intensive, an, an extensive and extensive verb. And it, it means a passionate craving, an inner longing, an evil desire. In fact, listen to the prophet Jeremiah, what he tells us about our hearts in Jeremiah 17, 9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So he's talking about the unregenerate heart. I, I, don't, don't you just love it when people say to you, well, you know, God knows my heart. Yes, he does. And I've got to be honest with you, sometimes it's been a very fret, fearful thing for me. Because he actually knows it better than I do. If, if, if what I know is concerning to me, I wonder what he knows, how much that is, should be concerning to me. And then listen to the words of our Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 15, verses 18 through 20. He says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the 
heart. And this defiles a person. And listen to what he says. For out of the heart come every or come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. It's not just merely what they do. It's the very fact that what? Where they are rooted. They are rooted in our hearts. And this is why, this is why it is essential that at regeneration, God give us a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, He shall give you a new heart. She'll replace your heart of stone by giving you a heart of flesh. Putting within you a new heart. He doesn't perform heart surgery in the sense of pulling out this organ in the center of my chest. But there's a change in our lives. Look at verse 3. He gives them over to impurity. This word is generally a term for uncleanness. Uncleanness. Catharsis. Think about that word. This is acatharsis. Or actually acatharsia, the Greek word. And it's a term for uncleanness. For example, it is often used of decaying matter. I found this to be interesting, especially in regards to the contents of a grave. That's the way it's used. However, it did, it did also, in its biblical context, have a moral application, which is the context of what Paul has in mind in Romans 1. The word was closely, and this I found to be quite amazing as well, the word was closely associated with sexual immorality, especially physical acts. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, 2 Corinthians 12, 21, Paul writes, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, akatharsia, sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. So there he uses the term in context of sexual sin, sexual Im Now, I'm not going to get ahead of myself here, but just think what I've already read to you and where we're going to come back to next week, the Lord willing, in context of what Paul says next. Number four, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Powerful. You see, I love what Dr. White says in his book on sexual sins. He says, the twistedness, or I'm sorry, the, he says, the title of the book is The Same-Sex Controversy. But anyway, he says, quote, The twistedness of sin is seen in that the desires of the heart's heart results in the dishonoring of their bodies. Did you catch that? God as creator designed men. Now listen, God as creator designed man to function in a particular way. Fashion, and we'll see this next week. The rebellious creature invests incredible time. Is this not true? I'm quoting him, still quoting him. 
The rebellious creature invests incredible time and energy into finding ways to use his body as to violate God's law and standard. Amen. Of course, he says, this only results in the damage and despair of the person engaging in the rebellion. But such is the futility of the depraved mind. End of quote. Actually, that's from his book, The God Who Justifies. And then in verse 25, and this is where we'll stop. In verse 25, the Apostle Paul gives the reason again for God giving them up. Because they exchanged, listen, the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Here's the third exchange. Man exchanges, God exchanges, now man exchanges. Paul reverts back to man's actions. They exchange. What is it that they exchanged? He's very explicit, isn't he? The truth about God for a lie. Here's what they exchanged. They exchanged the truth for a lie. The truth is God exists. And by virtue of Him being the Creator, He can, and listen church, and does rightfully demand to be honored and to be glorified as the sovereign Lord over all. However, ungodly men in their unrighteousness, exchange this truth for a lie. The lie is God does not exist. And therefore, man has no moral obligation or accountable to anyone other than his own twisted perspective. That's the lie. I'm not really fully persuaded that the typical, like, for example, the other conversation I had yesterday with my pest control guy. I'm not fully persuaded that the person who claims to be an atheist or an agnostic Simply agonosis, which means I don't know a person who doesn't have any, claims to have no knowledge. I don't know whether there's a God or whether I don't know that we can know. That's an agnostic or an atheist who simply I just simply deny or refuse to believe that there is. But I'm not. I'm really not persuaded that they truly don't believe there's a God. I think it really, and think with me through this, I think it really more boils down to this. I don't want to even imagine that there is anything outside of me that I am going to have to find myself accountable to. Because if I do, if there is someone or something that exists outside of myself then I'm accountable to that, especially if it's larger and, and than I am, more powerful than I am, especially if it is responsible for creating me. And that idea of being accountable and responsible to that, whatever it is, they may say, is just something I can't entertain. You see... 
Man does not have, the, have to honor or glorify anything outside of himself. That's what he wants. Worship and service turn from the creator to the creature. That's what happens. And welcome to the mindset of our day. Welcome to the 21st century. Again, one more time, and I will wrap this up. I promise. It says close right there, see? You know how hard that is to do that? But again, listen to Dr. White. He says, quote, and this is from the same-sex controversy on page 116. He says, quote, The worship and service of man's soul that insatiable religious nature of the creature made in God's image cannot avoid the twisting that sin brings. Men are going to worship. Come on. By virtue of the nature of our Creator, men are made to worship. I don't care if he's the most staunch atheist or God-hater or rabid skeptic. He's going to worship. He's going to worship. He said, The worship and service of man's soul, that insatiable religious nature of the creature made in God's image, cannot avoid the twisting that sin brings. Man will worship, but when he is actively involved in suppressing the truth about God, listen, That worship will be focused anywhere, anywhere but upon the true and living God. And this, and so that which is created worships and serves that which is likewise created. All in the effort to avoid, and he sums it up so well. He says, all in the effort to avoid recognizing the blessed Creator. The twistedness becomes blatant and increasingly reprehensible, as we're going to see as we finish this up. This is exactly what we will see in the verses following. What you're going to see in verse 26 all the way through verse 32 is increasing reprehensible conduct And God's continued indignation. Well, Paul has been in the muck and the mire filth for verses now. And I can picture the apostle who just enjoys and loves the presence of Christ and the grace of God in his life. As a diver, I can can picture this. I can picture skin diving and and making a, a dive to, to pick something up off the bottom of the water and you're holding your breath and as you begin to approach the, the, the desire to breathe and get a breath becomes increasingly greater until you break the surface, surface and at that moment you gasp for air. <gasps> How sweet is that? And at this moment, Paul has been to this place. He's been deep in man's sin. And all of a sudden, in just a few short words, he closes with a brief doxology. He says, the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Short words, but to Paul, a breath of fresh air. This is, 
how sinful men behave themselves. They ignore God. They dismiss God. They worship anything but God. But it is God who is to be blessed forever. No doubt, Paul seeks a reprieve and he finds it here. And this reprieve is in the form of praise. And Paul's praise stands in stark contrast to all he has said. But guess what, folks? He's not done yet. He's gotten a breath. And he's going to dive again. And what he has to say in the following verses are of extreme value to us and are so very relevant to the very day we live in. Paul may not be done, but I am at least for today. Father, there, there's no question that these are weighty verses. This is, in fact, a weighty subject. When you begin to even attempt to put into some perspective an understanding of the wrath of God and the unrighteousness the measure of unrighteousness, the depth of unrighteousness, the breadth of unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And yet, Father, Your grace is so wonderful. Your grace abounds. Your mercy abounds. Your love endures. Never fails. And as we look at these weighty verses as we explore this deep subject. Lord, it gives us a great understanding of that darkness out of which you have delivered us by your great grace and through your unfailing love. Demonstrated to us in the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the truth of the gospel that you have brought to our minds by regenerating us, drawing us to yourself, and giving us this great salvation. If there's one today, Father, among us who have not yet come to that place, I pray that your call would go out to them. Your spirit would convict their hearts and you would draw them sovereignly to yourself through your grace and by your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name.